Welcome to All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light driving scientific innovation in the 21st century. I'm Joel Williams, Associate Editor at Photonics Media. Join us as we explore the latest trends in optics, lasers, microscopy, and spectroscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape, brought to you by Photonics Media. The Boston University Neurophotonics Center is among the world's leading contributors of brain-focused research and technical expertise. The center brings together neuroscientists and photonics researchers applying new and established optical modalities to society's most pressing medical challenges. Today on All Things Photonics, we speak with Dr. David Boas, the center's director. As an author of more than 250 published papers and a holder of more than 30,000 citations, Boaz's research focuses on neurovascular coupling, cerebral oxygen delivery and consumption, and physiological modeling. He's a top practitioner of Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or fMRI, and founding editor-in-chief of the journal Neurophotonics, published by SPIE. Boaz is also the founding president of the Society for Functional Near-Infrared Spectroscopy, or FNIRS. That technique, along with laser speckle contrast imaging, are currently deployed by Boaz and his fellow members of faculty at the Boston University Neurophotonic Center for numerous applications in brain imaging. As we dive into the techniques, we also hear from Boaz on how current uses for the technology are evolving. Wearables, for one, are of heightened focus not only in neuroscience, but throughout optics and electronics. Jake Saltzman and Director of Boston University Neurophotonic Center David Boaz are next. So one of the first things I think that's important for us to do here, there are a number of, of words and terms that are probably worth identifying um, because they're going to guide our discussion, I think. And the first one may be a simple one, just in terms of definitions, um, neurophotonics. Is there anything that that term or that field envelops beyond what we might ascertain from the, the words neuro and photonics? It's as you know straightforward as it sounds. It's just the convergence of you know the neurosciences with photonics technologies. So using photonic technologies to address the needs of neuroscientists. So there are a number of established modalities using light to peer into the brain, to work in the brain, with the brain. And I, I'll use the term established optical imaging modalities. Certainly there are new ones or, or are new ways to, new methods of using existing modalities. But I'm going to ask you this, do you have a favorite um, with which to work or is there maybe a combination of techniques that you find to be particularly dynamic? You know, my own biases are kind of where I've been trained. Mm. Um, and I, you know, for my PhD, I, I started working on diffuse correlation spectroscopy, which is a, a technology that looks at laser speckle fluctuations. So I, I have a special interest in speckles, kind of a, a, a niche area. You know, speckles are kind of just noise to most people but their temporal fluctuations carries interesting information about the sample. Uh, and so I, I've always enjoyed kind of what I could learn about the sample from the temporal fluctuations of speckles. And then, you know, I was also trained in near-infrared spectroscopy. When I went on to start my own lab, you know, I was fortunate enough to go work in a brain imaging center where they had just invented fMRI. And they were interested in optical methods to help us better understand the fMRI signals of brain activation. My PhD is in physics, and I 
was fortunate enough to work between Arjun Yod in a soft condensed matter physics lab and uh, Britton Chance, who is a biophysicist who dabbled in, in, in many different um, fields. Uh, he was interested in measuring energy metabolism invasively and non-invasively. And so I, I got to work between you know, a physics lab and a biomedical, uh, biophysics, biomedical imaging lab um, and translating between them. So in, in, the, in the physics lab, we were using light scattering to study the dynamics of colloidal systems. And then in Britain Chance's lab, tried to use the exact same techniques to measure the dynamics of blood flow in human tissue. At what point did the brain emerge as uh, the logical pursuit, I suppose, for your science? Yep. Yeah. I mean, actually, so during my PhD, kind of, I mean, all of our measurements were in fish tanks of, <laughs> of milk, basically. <laughs> um, I was a physicist, after all, um, had to simplify things. <laughs> um, but it was always in the context, actually, in that, at that time, of trying to image uh, breast cancer. But then when I went to start my own lab, I had to go break off in a new direction. Um, and I, I was fortunate to find myself kind of recruited to Mass General Hospital where they, at the Martino Center, you know, had just invented fMRI a few years earlier. And that got me into the brain. So prior to that, I hadn't really thought about brain, but our, we had technology that was really good for looking at brain activation. FNIRS, the functional form of near-infrared spectroscopy, had just been demonstrated a few years earlier, one year after the advent of fMRI. Um, people doing the uh, fMRI were excited about the potential to help them better understand the brain imaging signals by using near-infrared spectroscopy. So you've mentioned um, speckles. Um, I have here my, my cheat sheet, laser speckle contrast imaging, and I suspect we'll talk about it. But let's, let's, let's start with speckles. When did that pathway sort of begin to chart a course for you? Yeah, I mean, so that was the like the major part of my PhD dissertation was this diffuse correlation spectroscopy, okay. which is looking at the temporal fluctuations of speckle patterns. And when I was uh, starting my own lab, I, I kept thinking about how to advance that technology, how to make it more massively parallel um, instead of just getting a single point measurement. How, how could we form an image? And my PhD work was point measurements of the type that could go through several centimeters of tissue. But as I was thinking about how to extend that further, um, ended up coming across laser speckle contrast imaging, which was a beautifully elegant method where you just shine laser light on your sample and you integrate the reflected speckle pattern on a camera. And if the speckles are fluctuating, the speckle contrast is, is blurred out over the integration time of the camera. Very simple method. And it was shown to provide images of blood flow many years prior to that. Um, it had been used in applications in like dermatology, for instance. But I, I had been working in the brain. And I was working with colleagues who wanted to image blood flow in animal models. So they were actually studying stroke. And so they were using a point laser Doppler probe and getting a point measurement of blood flow. What they said they'd love to do is to get an image of blood flow in the animal model, but it would take four minutes to scan their point probe to get a very low resolution image. And that was not acceptable. They wanted much higher temporal resolution. And so this laser speckle contrast imaging was perfect for them. And instead of taking several minutes to get an image, they could basically in one camera frame, five milliseconds, 
get an image of blood flow in the brain. And that had never been applied to the neurosciences. I had this interest in trying to expand laser speckle, dynamic laser speckle measurements, and, and just came across this laser speckle contrast imaging and was able to apply it to the neurosciences. It has just had really explosive impact in the neurosciences. Just going to say that one of the great joys of my job is we get to have experts on and I get to talk to them and they say things like, oh, neurophotonics, don't overthink it. It's really quite simple. Laser speckle contrast image. Yeah, it's really a pretty simple technique, which just blows my mind that there are people out there who can view the techniques and the technologies as such. Uh, within the brain, there are different things to image, to be imaged. Uh, you can look at proteins, you can look at blood flow. As it relates to laser speckle contrast imaging, what are some of the things in the brain the technique is, is most suited for use in? Yeah, so those first applications, we were looking at um, stroke, right? So in a stroke, you are occluding blood flow to a region of the brain. Um, and so that blood flow can drop 50%, 80%. And so if you can get an image of that, um, that tells you where the tissue is susceptible to death um, because of uh, starvation of, of oxygen. But then there's really fascinating dynamics as basically the cells are not getting oxygen. They cannot keep their membranes polarized um, because there's ion pumps always keeping the membranes polarized. As they depolarize, it creates this cascade of events that creates these dynamics in the tissue which also then causes dynamics in blood flow. And so just being able to see those dynamics, my colleagues were able to kind of measure these dynamics for the first time. It gives you just really new insight to the evolution of the injury caused by a stroke and how that stroke will grow over time. And my colleague also then, he had a hypotheses about a migraine headache. Many people who suffer from a migraine will have an aura which is some visual disturbance that precedes the headache phase. And so they had hypotheses about what is the connection between the aura and the headache um, and being able to measure the spatial and temporal dynamics of blood flow enabled them to confirm those hypotheses. So that laser spoke contrast really suits itself for really looking at dynamic changes, spatial and temporal changes in blood flow um, in the brain in particular. Curious about the dynamics of your lab or, or your group, uh, Neurophotonics at BU. What are some of the challenges, some of the pursuits that you and your team are, are working on currently? I was always excited by optical coherence tomography. Many years ago, we kind of merged optical coherence tomography with, with laser speckle contrast measurements and, and dynamic light scattering. More recently, we looked at ultrasound and ultrasound has speckle. And so basically did the exact same thing with ultrasound, looking at the speckle fluctuations. So that's been great fun. So we're always still looking at the speckle. Now we're, now we're looking at interferometric speckle contrast measurements and how can we get more sensitivity to deeper brain tissues by in, um, enhancing the sensitivity with um, interferometric measurements. In parallel, so that's measuring blood flow. In parallel, I've continued to use near-infrared spectroscopy to measure hemoglobin concentrations and hemoglobin oxygenation as a complement to blood flow. And this has been really a big deal for measuring human brain function um, as a complement to fMRI. We can measure you know, brain function in populations and with paradigms that you can't easily study with fMRI, for instance. 
really kind of what's keeping us quite busy these days is making the technology wearable so you can measure human brain function as as subjects are moving about uh, in the everyday world. It's time for the Luminary Minute, a segment where Photonics Media looks back at a pivotal figure in the history of optical and photonic science. In this episode, we'll discuss Robert Hooke, whose work Micrographia was the first to describe cells and the first to include illustrations of insects and plants as seen through a microscope. Active in the mid to late 1600s, Hooke's works span paleontology, biology, optics, geology, physics, horology, and astronomy. A man of a great many firsts, Hooke built the first Gregorian telescope, which allowed him to make observations about the rotations of Mars and Jupiter. He was also the first to observe the cell, coining the term, noting the visual similarity of cork cells to the cells of a honeycomb. Hooke was among the founders of the Royal Society of London, which also included Isaac Newton, who was regarded as Hooke's arch-nemesis, and served as curator of experiments, a role he held for life. Through his work in optics, Hooke developed a wave theory of light, which historians point to as the flashpoint for Hooke's long-standing feud with Newton, who championed a corpuscular theory of light, which he published after Hooke's death. The feud between the pair grew more contentious throughout the years, as Hooke claimed to have given Newton certain ideas about gravitation, optics, and astronomy. Scholars claim that Newton worked actively to erase Hooke's scientific legacy after his death as president of the Royal Society, going so far as to destroy or quote-unquote lose Hooke's only known portrait, though this claim has been disputed. Much of Hooke's work with the Royal Society was rediscovered in 2006, having been quote-unquote missing since Newton took over 320 years ago. This week's episode is sponsored by Modulite, a laser company that designs and manufactures lasers and optics for better living. Modulite is the only vertically integrated medical laser manufacturer in the world, specializing in the fields of preclinical and clinical applications such as cancer treatments and drug development, quantum computing, and other laser solutions. For more information, visit modulite.com and by Omicron Laser, one of the leaders in laser systems and LED light sources. Do your biotech, microscopy, and industry applications require reliable and high-quality light sources? With a 36-month warranty, superior personal support, and customized solutions to meet your specific needs, Omicron's high-quality laser and LED light sources are made for you and made to last. Visit omicronlaser.de for more information. In the second part of our conversation with David Boaz, we hear how wearable technology is opening new pathways for technical advances in neuroscience. As the technology advances for wearable applications, companies are popping up ready to commercialize product offerings. This is true not only for brain wearables, but wrist and finger wearables as well. In the brain space, Kernel Flow is one such company. The neurotechnology startup has developed a wearable headset device for brain measurement based on time-domain functional FNIRs. On the components front, advances in detectors are a driving force behind not only wearables, but multiple waves of innovation. These topics and more are up next in part two of our conversation with David Boas. So there's a lot going on with wearables. I'm sure you're familiar with the kernel flow technology, which is uh, you know, based on a wearable cap. 
Um, there yeah. are a number of spin-out companies that are you know now more than startups that are um, becoming increasingly established in the wearable space. Uh, how vast are the possibilities in that area? Because it has burst onto the scene, and and whether it's in the neural realm or it's it's a, a risk technology, certainly everyone is talking about what Apple might be doing. Let's just talk about some of those possibilities because I, I have to think they are considerable and vast. Yeah, well, the wearables, you know, with smart watches and now smart rings, a number of people quite interested in following their vital signals, uh, vital signs uh, throughout the day and night. You know, I think Colonel's on to something, uh, as well as many other companies, about making it possible to measure your brain health and the technology. So, these wearable optical devices have advanced quite amazingly well the last decade, just with the miniaturization of electronics and the photonics industry with the light sources and the detectors being just just better and better in, um, in terms of the optical powers they can deliver and the sensitivity of the detectors, um, making them small enough now that you can like wear them on your brain. So the technology is certainly capable of doing all of this. So the next big challenge is how do you interpret the signals? Right? So the, the smart watches, they're just doing photoplasmography, you know, or pulse oximetry. This technology has been around for 40 years. So we kind of have those 40 years of research and development on how to interpret those signals. Whereas these brain signals are much newer. And so it's it's really great to have such advanced technology. But now, you know, we have to use that technology to really understand what the heck do these brain signals mean? And we're going to learn a great deal more over the next decades. And one of the great enablers, I, I suppose not an, an enabler, it's more of an activator for this wearable yep. technology, yep. especially in your realm, would be this functional near-infrared spectroscopy of which we've spoken just a little bit. Uh, what makes that technology, or that technique rather, uh, such a good fit for some of the wearables that are you know, still in the early stages, whether it's conceptualization or the beginning stages of, of actuality? The miniaturization of LEDs and making them you know, higher powered just advanced detectors. So uh, coming to the fore now are these silicone photomultipliers and just they have all the right characteristics for putting them into wearable devices. You don't need high voltages. You know, you don't have to worry about cooling them as much. Um, so it, it all lends itself to this wearable packaging. Uh, we already know we can measure these brain activation signals and previously, you know, we've done it with non-wearable systems, um, but the technology now has made it possible that we we can, instead of having a hundred pound instrument, you know, on the shelf with fiber optics going to the head, we can just put all of the sources and detectors onto the head. You know, it weighs three pounds um, and it's way more sensitive than the prior generation hundred pound system. We've talked some spectroscopy, we've talked some speckle contrast imaging, OCT, dynamic light scattering. So it's sort of a chicken and egg question that I have. I mean, you're working on any number of problems at any given time. You have your focuses. Everyone does. You know, what comes first? Is it is it the problem and new ways to address it, or is it the technology and sort of searching for a problem uh, right. for, the, for the method? It should always be the problem driving the technology. Um, I've been fortunate in that I, I trained in some technologies found good matches for those. I found problems that really needed those technologies, which then started a cycle for me um, that started really 20 years ago, where you know we, 
I found a good match for the technology, a problem. We had addressed that important problem, which then led to identification of new problems for which we were able to then find new technologies. And now for me, you know, that is continuing uh, where you identify the problem and find the right technology for the problem. And so now at Boston University, I'm directing the Neurophotonic Center where we bring together over 40 faculty, half of them are neuroscientists, half of them are, are photonics um, um, faculty um, working in the photonic sciences. sciences. And uh, we just over and over again, you know, talking with the neuroscientists and they have some needs and we can find the right photonic specialists who can provide solutions to meet those needs. Boaz is a pioneer of functional near-infrared spectroscopy, or FNIRS. The non-invasive imaging method uses absorptive properties to enable near-infrared light to interact with tissue in the brain, enabling the monitorization of blood flow. Boaz did not invent the technique, though he has contributed to its increase in practice. As founding president of the Society for Functional Near-Infrared Spectroscopy, Boaz has helped the society advance as an entity while continuing to advance the field. Its growth can be measured by the number of FNIRS practitioners, as well as by the reach of their work. In a decade, it was just a very small group of people uh, working in the field. I think in the first 10 years, there's like 140 papers in the whole FNIRS field. It was great. You could read every single one. You knew every <laughs> researcher in the field. That was just great. Then the next 10 years, more and more people were curious about it. You had the technology developers who wanted to make it better. And then you had the application people who were coming from many different fields. And in their own fields, they didn't know other people doing FNIRS. Uh, and so they needed people to talk to. And so one really big seminal moment it was 2010 when we had the first FNIRS conference. We had that here in Boston. And it brought together technology developers with the technology users. I organized that and I invited 50 people because I thought, you know, 50 people will have a great meeting. It'll be amazing if another 50 people come and we have 100 people. Actually, uh, we had 150 people. So it was a huge success. And so we've repeated that every two years. And that led to the Society for FNIRS. And it's just a fantastic community where, you know, it's been bringing together the users with the developers. Um, and they're working together just to provide the technological solutions to advance the applications. So that was one big seminal moment. Shortly after that, so that was 2010, I, you know, right around the same time, I think high-density FNIRs came to the fore. Joe Culver, Adam Egerbrick, Washington University in St. Louis, they've um, really pioneered just how amazing FNIRs can be when you have a high-density array of sources and detectors, just how much better your spatial resolution gets. But then that was making it more like an fMRI machine. So it was becoming less and less portable. So then the next big seminal advance was just the miniaturization of all the electronics that has enabled wearable systems. And, you know, pretty soon we're going to have these wearable ultra high density FNIR systems. It's a, it's sort of a dream uh, evolution, a very, uh, very linear one. You don't always see that. And that's uh, not always good, not always bad, but it is somewhat of a linear progression just in terms of devices and components, you know, where has the shift taken place? You talked about miniaturization, but I'm sure there are others. And, and how has that benefited your research, this, this progression in devices and components in particular? At the end of the day, it's all about the noise performance of your detector. 
uh, and just reducing that noise and reducing the electronic noise so that you can be shot noise limited and can you really achieve that? And you know, for a long, long time, I accepted it one noise level with avalanche photodiodes and I thought I really couldn't do much better. But now I'm realizing and, and everyone else in the field realizing that we can achieve certainly 10 times better and maybe 100 times better with new detectors as well as with new multiplexing strategies on the light sources. Another trend I think we would be remiss not to at least touch on um, is this advent of deep learning and AI-enabled mm. um, imaging modalities and some of the advances that have emerged from those powers really with AI and, and deep learning. What possibilities have they opened up for neurophotonics or in neurophotonics? Yeah, well, in the FNIRS field, I, you know, I haven't seen much yet. I think there's going to be um, work in, in analyzing the brain activation signals. Um, in other domains of, of neurophotonics, there's been, um, I've seen impressive work from a colleague of mine, Lei Tian, uh, here at Boston University, who has been extracting signal out of noise. So you have microscopy images. You want to image fast, particularly if you want to look at voltage indicators. You have very few photons, you're imaging fast. Can you find the signal in all that noise? So just the deep learning methods are proven to be very helpful in just discerning the patterns in those noisy spatial temporal uh, images. And you've been in this field for, for a long time now. How do you think about our chart progress in brain science? And within that, is there a distinguishment you make between research advances and product commercialization or some of the other ways that you could gauge progress? Yeah, it's interesting that neuroscientists and optical devices or any devices advancement is a good match. And the neuroscientists are always hungry for the latest technology. They're not always willing to wait for commercialization. And so they learn how to adopt the technologies and um, themselves. Of course, once it's commercialized, it can be much more broadly disseminated. But a lot is already picked up and disseminated you know, before it's commercialized. So it goes hand in hand. Two-photon microscopy is, is a one big success story of commercialization and, and just, you know, going back now 30 years when it was first demonstrated, that was 1991. Um, a few years later, they were applying it in the neurosciences then, but it, w it took another 10-ish years, maybe 2010, com robust commercial systems were being deployed and adopted in the neurosciences. And now basically almost every neuroscientist has access to a, a, a two-photon microscope. It's quite ubiquitous in the field, but that was a long pathway from first demonstration to commercialization and then widespread adoption. But the impact was there way before you know, the commercialization. So that, that, I think, is the interesting thing about the neurosciences and neurophotonics is that new technologies have immediate impact. You know, it doesn't need the commercialization pathway. David Boaz is director of the Neurophotonic Center at Boston University. I want to thank you for being here and for, for shedding light on some of these technologies and the work that's taking place in your group. Great. Nice chatting with you. That concludes this week's episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to our news editor, Jake Saltzman, as well as to this week's sponsors. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, and let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthings at photonics.com. 
All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website, photonics.com.